getting confident and comfortable and finding ease in your work can help you be confident and comfortable and easeful in how you manage money and the other way around. Finding this peace with money that I have found through the work that I do helps me to have peace in the career decisions that I make and the goals that I go after. Welcome back. I'm Kathy Onetto, and this is the Sustainable Ambition Podcast, the podcast that explores how to be ambitious and navigate work from decade to decade without sacrificing yourself or your life. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dana Miranda. Dana is a certified educator in personal finance and founder of Healthy Rich, a platform for inclusive, budget-free financial education. She works with organizations, schools, and companies dedicated to making money better for folks who are often left out of the conversation about money. Dana is also author of the forthcoming book, You Don't Need a Budget. Dana has written about work and money for Forbes, Culture Study, The New York Times, The Motley Fool, and Inc. Magazine, among many others. This was such an enlightening conversation for me. Dana is doing important work to bring visibility and voice to the diverse experiences we have with money and finance, and that aren't currently being recognized and expressed in our culture. You might find for yourself that traditional financial and money management tips don't resonate with you, and Dana is offering new perspective through Healthy Rich. My hope is that this episode offers at least two pieces of value for you. First, that it starts to get you to think about how your view of money and financial management can support your sustainable ambition. And the second is to raise your awareness around creating a more inclusive world around money and finance and what might be your part in that. What you'll hear in today's conversation is how our work is inextricably tied to money and our relationship with money is inextricably tied to both our histories and personal experiences and the goals we set for our lives. Getting comfortable with our own views on money can be foundational to our sustainable ambition. Let's hear how with Dana Miranda. Hello, everyone. I am excited to be joined today by Dana Miranda. Dana, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kathy. I'm so excited. I'm really excited to be in conversation with you. And I wanted to start here. It's so interesting. The title of your forthcoming book, You Don't Need a Budget. I was kind of like, wait, what? You know, yeah. that's so <laughs> contrarian to what we typically hear, right? So you you say that your approach to financial education is an antidote to pervasive budget culture. And I wanted you you contrast this or you relate it. I shouldn't say you contrast it. You really relate it to kind of food and diet culture. I'd love for you to just tell us more. What is budget culture and why is it unhealthy? So budget culture is very much a parallel with diet culture. I really coined the term and sort of identified the characteristics of it because I was learning about diet culture and seeing the parallels in the work I was doing in personal finance media. So it's what I call the kind of dominant paradigm for the way that we talk about and teach about money in our culture. 
Um, just like diet culture, it relies on discipline and restriction, has this tone of perfectionism and um, individual responsibility, as opposed to kind of recognizing systemic forces and um, and fixing systemic issues. And they're both kind of rooted, both uh, diet culture and budget culture kind of rooted in this bias towards a white male identity um, in different ways. So um, diet culture, especially in whiteness, but that all of the advice and the sort of list of rules that we give and the right ways of doing things, so-called right ways of doing things, are are modeled after this kind of white male ideal in our culture, um, just sort of like any of the bias in our systems. So it's just sort of this catch-all name for what makes up the foundation of a lot of the financial advice we get um, and financial education. And um, it results in, just like in diet culture, it results in handing out sets of rules to achieve these like assumed goals rather than, like I said, um, investigating the systems and kind of empowering people with information. This was really interesting to me. I'll admit, I have an undergraduate finance degree, and I hadn't really ever thought about it in this lens of these rules are coming, you know, being defined within a certain kind of set lens uh, and structures that are already in place and that those mm -hmm. were put in place because of certain societal or cultural norms. And so you talk about this idea of really bringing more diversified views of money and circumstances into mm -hmm. how you talk about work and money. And I and you talk about there's these diverse relationships that we have with work and money. And I was I wanted to see if you could share some examples of that for us to kind of widen our lens around what are most of us missing in this? Because there's this really dominant way of viewing things, but there's these other diverse relationships that we aren't aware of. Yeah, it there really are, you know, as many relation types of relationships with money as there are people. It's one of those nuanced things because money intersects with every other part of our identity and every other sort of facet of our life. Um, relationships and family and and um, identity, things like that. So I was missing that in writing in personal finance media, um, just sort of laying out these different rules, um, different pieces of advice, um, sets of like tools for people to use. We're all sort of assuming it, it wasn't, of course, explicit that, you know, it was like this white male middle class kind of identity, but I could see where things were being left out. So it started with my own experience and I bring a lot of various privileges um, with my identity and my background. But I come from um, working class, small town, rural Midwest. Um, I'm a queer woman. And so those are things, those are voices that you don't hear a lot in personal finance media. And I was working for a startup where I was surrounded by women. Like we had this very female-led organization so it felt really kind of diverse and progressive in that way. I was surrounded by progressive thinkers, but almost everyone I worked with had a had been raised with a middle class background. And so I started to see in the ways that we were talking about money. Um, I remember this one conversation that like really stands out to me. One time we were 
some piece of news had come out. It was maybe a study or something about people buying toilet paper in bulk versus not. And and the personal finance space had sort of picked it up to say, here's how much money you could save by buying toilet paper in bulk. And that's just sort of where the advice ends. But what it doesn't include is that you have to have the amount of money that it costs to buy something in bulk. So if one roll of toilet paper at the convenience store costs $1.50, you know, and you have $5, you can go pick that up. If a pack, a 36 pack of toilet paper at Costco costs, I have no idea how much that costs because I haven't bought toilet paper in such bulk. But, you know, if that costs $36 or something, you have to have that cash on hand in order to make the so-called smart financial decision. And I was having that conversation with the people on my team. And one piece that came back was, why don't people just put it on a credit card? And so then we had to get even deeper into having access to credit and understanding I was in a position at the time where I had a very low credit score. Before I took that job, I was earning a really low income. So I couldn't get a credit card. I was living with a debit card so I could only pay for the things that I had cash for and had come from that situation where I had gone down the street to buy a single roll of toilet paper from a convenience store because we needed toilet paper and it was hard to get to the store. And and all there's so many factors in this that are not getting put into the story where we just say, here's how much money you can save by buying in bulk and and just leaving it at that, which shames people for not making that decision. Um, it's sort of this assumption that once you know that information, now you can make that decision. The problem before was that you just didn't know someone needed to do that math for you and give you that information. I love that example. And what I take away from that too, Dana, is like you were the person in the room who saw things differently, had experienced something different. So you were that diverse perspective and you were kind of calling forth your team to be like, we need to be more inclusive here. And so it sounds like your prior work really illuminated for you this opportunity and the space for the work that you're doing now? It really planted the seeds. Um, I worked in sort of traditional personal finance media for several years after that, um, still rely on it a little bit for freelancing, though I'm kind of extricating myself from that work. But that kind of thing was the sort of thing that's just sort of started to stack up and, and weigh on me and help me see that the work I was doing um, and the sort of advice and the ways that I was thought that I was helping people was actually not being that helpful. So I started Healthy Rich about a year and a half ago, wanting to take that a step further. So, you know, you said that I was the diverse person in the room, but there are a lot of experiences that I don't understand. I'm able-bodied. My family has been upwardly mobile. So I've had a lot of support and kind of community wealth around me um, that um, I don't have that same experience of like kind of living in generational poverty that some people have. Um, I'm white, so I don't have the experience of being a person of color, a black person, an immigrant, a Native American. Um, So there's a lot of voices that, that weren't in the space and also that I couldn't represent myself. So I started Healthy Rich to originally to make a platform for those voices. So um, our blog is focused on sharing stories from contributors to talk about their experiences with money through the lens of those identities that we often ignore in the space and to show 
that there is an intersection with those identities, that it matters, um, that we can't just, you know, make finance this silo um, that's just about numbers and economics, that it intersects with all of these other parts of our experience and histories. Mm, That's really interesting. Can you say a little bit more about that? Like, what do you mean exactly by like the intersection of these voices? So I had a lot to learn in doing that. So part of, you know, inviting these contributors to write stories was a little bit of like, tell me what I'm missing, right? Like, tell me what I'm not experiencing, what I'm not understanding. So I invited, um, I've invited various kind of, we've done sort of series of essays from people. So and and it's endless, right? I can explore tons of identities and experiences. So we've got essays from women. Um, we did a series on Black finance. And right now we're rolling out um, essays from LGBTQ, uh, LGBTQ plus people. And a lot of the things that I've learned have been fantastic. Even from, you know, I, I asked for essays from women to tell me about their experiences. And a lot of what we got was experiences in the workplace, navigating um, bias and, uh, and gendered assumptions in the workplace. But even within that group, obviously, this is a huge group of women, the experiences were so varied and didn't all match my own. So even as a diverse voice, you know, as a woman in the personal finance space, I can't speak for everyone. So we have to hear all those stories. Because I'm not a Black person and don't have that experience, Black finance was very illuminating for me. And I hope for a lot of readers who are also not Black, um, I got essays from people all over the world, um, including the U.S. So it was the kind of Black U.S. experience and um, international experiences like living in colonized African countries and the kind of remnants of that, which was really kind of illuminating for me. Um, The experiences of being a Black immigrant in the United States, um, kind of living with uh, the intersection of having a Black identity in the U.S. and having the pressure kind of from immigrant parents and the expectations um, for this person of that experience. Um, what it's like to be celebrated for overcoming systemic poverty, um, which I thought was a really interesting conversation. And then um, some of the queer and trans people uh, that we have essays coming up are writing about like opting for self-employment to avoid the experience of bias and discrimination in the workplace. Someone is writing about um, kind of aging um, and thinking long term for the first time after having witnessed the AIDS crisis, where a lot of people around him had died at a young age. Um, and so there are these experiences that that have tons of cultural implications, right? If you talk about something like the AIDS crisis, um, or even just the experience of like being a queer person in the United States, there are tons of kind of angles that you can take on that. But it's really important to think about how that affects somebody's finances. So if you grew up with the assumption that everyone around you, um, everyone sort of that you admired and were learning from was dying early, you never learned how to make long-term financial plans. And so now what does that mean when you turn 40 for the next kind of phase of your life, right? It's illuminating these ways that identities and psychology and experiences and, and histories and cultures really impact our relationship with money and the decisions that we make with money. You're opening my eyes, Dana, just by sharing all of what you just shared in that. It's really interesting. And what came into my head as you were talking too is like, wow, this topic is so rich. Yes. <laughs> and yet I also <laughs> wanted I also wanted to come back to you. You know, what's interesting is you you termed your 
platform and the work you're doing, Healthy Rich. And I did want to better understand that, like, you and I both ended up putting together these terms that may seem like they shouldn't go together, sustainable ambition, you healthy rich. Tell us more about, like, what healthy rich means for you. It's very similar, I think, to at least how sustainable ambition lands for me. I think it's it's really similar in the way that you described, which is kind of taking this term that has a really negative connotation, rich, um, which raises all kinds of negative things for people, and sort of softening it with healthy and saying there's a different way that we can approach this. That's how I feel, you know, what you do with sustainable ambition too, where ambition can have a very negative connotation, but there's a lot of positive to it as well. Um, initially, healthy rich was just this sort of flippant, like it came to me, I think, as like a shower thought or something really brief like that, where as the opposite of filthy rich, where I was like, how can we talk about money and like abundance and success without this obsession and this kind of connotation of like you have to that you you have to do a lot of bad things to get there or you're necessarily a bad person to get there. And also the idea that filthy rich feels like it's just about the most money, having the most money. And healthy rich doesn't feel that way to me at all. It's about a, a much more well-rounded approach. Can you say more about that too? So what what is a well-rounded approach to money kind of look like? So for me, it's in a lot of cases, it's taking the kind of dollars and cents out of it completely um, because that's never the point. There's a lot of talk around like the the wealthiest people, like that ambition is not about having the most dollars and cents and the highest balance in your bank account, because what does that give you? That's just numbers. Um, and now money isn't, you know, a lot of the money we work with is digital. So it's like not even this tangible thing. It's really just numbers on a ledger somewhere. So you have to set that aside and talk about why is that the thing that you're striving for? And so that involves, you know, that involves some inner work to think about, like, what is my relationship with money? What is, you know, what do I think about having a lot of money? What do I think about earning money through work? What do I think about sharing money with people, spending money? What does that all bring up for me? Um, and then what are my individual goals outside of those dollars and cents? What am I actually trying to achieve in life? So whether it's a career that brings you satisfaction, a family that you get to spend a lot of time with, um, travel or living in a, a place that allows you to be part of a community, making some sort of contribution to the world. Like if what is the actual thing that you're after and what are the ways that money can help or hinder you kind of achieving that? And then also look outside yourself into the greater community and culture to see why is the culture sort of pushing this focus on the dollars and cents? Like why does having the most money and spending the least and sharing the least seem to be what we're being pushed towards? Um, what does that say about the systems that we live in and the culture that we live in? And what is at the root of that? So there's a lot of kind of investigation there to get a more well-rounded idea of money, which when I think of the term really has very little to do with currency or balances. And as you are talking about that, Dana, it is reminding me just how much stress comes around money and managing our money and recognizing, I think I was doing research last year where 
this idea of financial wellness and how much stress comes with financial management, I think has started to get more um, visibility. And I'm realizing the work that you're doing really is so square on in that space and helping people to perhaps reduce that stress around how they're thinking about their finances and how they can approach it in a way that fits them better. In something I read that you had written, you had said, like, all we have to do is follow the right rules. That's what we're told in budget culture. And yet what I'm hearing from you a bit is this idea of like, well, what are those right rules that are actually wrong? (laughs) You know, and where might you point people instead to manage their money with more ease? I think the believing that there is a set of right rules is this sort of overarching assumption that is wrong, um, that there is a, a certain set of right rules, right ways to use money and to behave around money that are going to get us to a certain end goal and that there is a correct end goal too, um, which is around kind of either wealth building. I think of it more as wealth hoarding because it's like earning as much as possible, giving away as little as possible, spending as little as possible. There's a focus in budget culture on those kind of rules are all aimed towards spending less, earning more, and especially eliminating debt, which is really taken as a given, as the right goal to have. Um, And I really want to challenge all of those, but especially the idea of of eliminating debt because it um, just kind of like anti-fat bias in our culture that having um, this kind of acceptance of debt shaming really eliminates all the nuance from why someone would take out debt, who has access to debt, and the kinds of uh, reasons for using debt that we tend to shame versus, you know, the ones that we celebrate and kind of accept. And all of these things, spending less, earning more money, eliminating debt, all also go back to this individual responsibility and put a blame on an individual for their financial circumstances when there's so much more nuance to it, that there are these systemic issues, but even going beyond that, that it's um, there's stuff that you bring kind of with your histories and experiences that have nothing to do with your day-to-day financial decisions that impact your financial circumstances. Do you mind if we double click a little bit on the eliminating debt? Like there are a lot of homeowners in this country and most of them have mortgages, which is debt. And Mm -hmm. I can imagine that like that is seen as being okay, but you're saying in these other circumstances of using debt, um, and frankly, it's really just called credit. And Mm -hmm. credit is also in this world, some would say, especially the credit card companies, that credit is what makes (laughs) the world go round. And it's not just the credit card companies. It's actually credit has been used for a very long time to forward economic growth. Um, And people can have different perspectives on that as well, Dana, but- can you say just a little bit more about like why why are you so anti-eliminate debt? Largely because we start from this place of shaming. So there's been a big conversation recently about student loan debt cancellation, of course, because that is happening with the administration in the US. And I push back regularly and I have written about the fact that I have about $62,000 in federal student loan debt um, that has grown since I was in college with interest. And that 
my basic goal with that is just to reduce my monthly burden as much as possible, that I don't have a goal of paying it off as quickly as possible. Um, I'm doing that within the system. It's not in default or anything. It has been in the past. And I think that those are morally equal positions to be in. Um, that I, you know, I was doing what worked for me at one time. Now I'm doing what works for me now. But I definitely get a response. And there's a big response even against student loan debt cancellation that people need to pay that money back, that there's something wrong with us, that we're taking advantage of a system. Filing bankruptcy comes with a lot of shame. And a lot of times that um, is eliminating credit card debt for people, that that ends up being the way that you can eliminate credit card debt and move on to the next phase of your life. And that all comes with just shaming the purchases that you're making, the decisions that you're making in your life. Um, and regardless of the circumstances you were in and regardless of what you use that money for, you made the decision that was right for you at the time, that worked for you at the time, that um, used kind of the inputs and the information that you had for decision making at the time. And now you have to make the decision that makes sense for you. And so I, we just need to strip away the shame that comes with it because we're all making the decisions in the moment that make the most sense for us. And then on a broader scale, I want to open up the conversation around debt to respond to people who suggest that there's a sort of moral or ethical um, failing in not repaying debt um, or kind of an irresponsibility because there's an assumption there that you start on an even playing field, um, that the agreement that you enter into with a lender or a credit card company is that it's fair, essentially. And any money that you're borrowing from a financial institution is starting with a system that is set up not in your best interest, because it's in the best interest of those institutions for you to hold debt and to not quite be able to pay it back, because that is one way that they make money. Um, credit cards in particular, they're, they're, the way that they make money, they're incentivized to uh, encourage you to accumulate debt and to pay it off slowly. You don't start from a fair place in the first place. You're not entering that agreement in good faith. The credit card companies are not doing that. And so when someone says that it's not, that it's irresponsible for me to not repay a loan or a credit card debt, there's an assumption that the credit card companies were doing something responsible by issuing me that debt. And the way the, that entire kind of system is set up is already irresponsible. Um, it's not the decision that I made. I'm within a system, um, and I won't even talk about myself in particular, but we live in a system where people don't have access to the resources they need and they take out credit to get them and that puts them into debt. And so companies are taking advantage of that situation and we give a lot more protections to those lenders and creditors to get that money back compared to the support that we give to people to have the resources they need to not have to take out that debt in the first place. And we don't give any kind of really support or relief to people to manage that debt once once they have it, um, with the exception of federal student loans, which which come with a lot of relief options that I'm really grateful for. One of the things that comes up for me as you're talking about this too, and the shame aspect of it is this sense that it makes it really difficult to operate and make good decisions when you're being shamed or you're standing in a place of shame. What I appreciate about what you're talking about too is that you're bringing 
insight and you're shining a mirror on these things that aren't being reflected to many, most of us, right? Like there is a predominant, as you're saying, financial conversation that happens typically in society. You're flipping things and your media company is offering these diverse perspectives, which is really, really helpful. And yet people need to take I would imagine, this is my language, so you can correct me if you think differently, but have some personal agency and move forward and step forward in their financial management. And I'm curious where you point people. So if that, like there's all these (laughs) rules that aren't right rules. And so is there some counsel you offer to people to take back some of that control despite these structures that are in place that hopefully will change as Mm -hmm. you continue to do your work and others continue to do their work. But in the meantime, where do you kind of point people to get some more positive financial management guidance? That's such an important question. And it's, it's so hard to sort of toggle between these two things of like, we need to change this entire system. Um, and who, here's who we need to vote for and here's the policies we need um, versus like people are dealing with this really every minute of every day. It's how you're making decisions around work and and how you're spending money and, and saving money and what you're doing with your money. Um, and so we constantly have to like hold those two things. Um, what is disappointing to me is that in personal finance media and education, we talk a lot less about the systemic part of it and the political part of it and really focus on just that individual part of it. But I think where you start kind of and how you can address this depends on how much agency the system grants you in the first place, because we're all at different points. So the advice to someone who is struggling with money or living paycheck to paycheck because of generational poverty is very different from the advice to someone who grew up in a wealthy family Um, and is just trying to figure out their relationship with money and the best ways to redistribute their wealth um, to to feel like they are making the right impact on the world. So start by understanding where the the system and the culture that you're in is granting you agency or not. Um, And I do kind of fight in sort of a radical way that like if you have the tolerance to opt out of these broken systems and, and to fight them, then do it. And I'm doing that to varying degrees myself. It's absolutely not perfect. Um, there, you know, I'm constantly struggling with like, do I shop at Amazon and going back and forth? And you know, we're co- we're all constantly faced with those things. So um, whatever decision you make is not wrong. Like you just have to make the decision. I do want to make that clear. But if you have the tolerance, like I recently pulled all of the money out of my IRA, which is you have a finance degree. That's very unadvisable. Like no one, um, no financial advisor would suggest that I do that. But I don't want my money in the stock market because I don't like the way that it works and it doesn't feel ethical to me. So it didn't feel like the right choice for me. So I'm going to find different things to do with that money and a different way to make plans for my life. And I have a high tolerance for the risk that that brings because I don't have, you know, now I don't have a long term retirement plan um, and the tax shelter that comes with it and, and the things that, you know, come with the reasons that people tell you that you need to have a retirement account. So I have a lot of tolerance for that um, with the the privilege that I, that, like I was talking about, the sort of family and community wealth that I do bring to it, the um, financial position that I'm in with the work that I'm able to do, the skills that I have. 
and I don't have children and my I keep my housing costs low. So there's a lot of things that give me a high tolerance for making decisions like that. Um, so find sort of where kind of in the same way when you're investing, find like where your risk tolerance is and see what sort of little ways you might be able to either challenge the system or opt out of it. Um, we can all vote. That's a very simple one. Um, I actually want to take that back. It's not we can't all vote that that agency is uh, taken away from a lot of people, unfortunately. Um, but we all have the right to vote. <laughs> um, and so those of us who have access to that um, should fight to ensure that everybody has access to it. And also then to you know find the ways that your vote can support policies that can make changes to the system um, so that everyone isn't just relying on kind of the day-to-day. I've had a lot of conversations with people who kind of embody identities that the system is really explicitly designed to oppress, like uh, Black people, trans people, um, immigrants, that I'm always sort of challenged with this idea of like Black wealth building in a capitalist system, right? Like where, where are the ethics of that? And people struggle with it. But the lesson that I have learned is that if you, because the system is designed to prevent you from finding success, that if you learn how to play the game and find success within that system, that you are beating it and you are breaking the system. And so, you know, if you're struggling with that sort of kind of ethical concern and what it comes down to for you is just taking the day-to-day things to like make more money in work, um, get, you know, sort of follow the path, like put money in investments, um, ask for a raise at work, climb the corporate ladder. Like if you're doing all those things within a system that was designed to keep you from doing those things, that is a way of fighting the system. So keep doing that. So it kind of starts with like, where is your agency and tolerance um, in the first place? And there's a lot of levels there. You kind of, you have to understand your place and your needs and the kind of greater systemic things to be able to see like where you are within that system. This is so deep and layered. It really is so interesting how integrated this topic of money can be to our identity and how we function in the world. And what I'm wondering about too, Dana, is connecting it now a little bit to sustainable ambition and this idea and where work fits in and the methods of making money and what have you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you talk about and say that work should be fun and money should be easy. And you also talk about this idea of doing good work. So I wanted to just unpack this a little bit and connect how these broader views that you're talking about. So first, one has to get like kind of comfortable. What's your history? What's your relationship with money, et cetera, that you talked about earlier? Then understanding your own agency within the system. And now I'm kind of bringing it down to the way that most of us earn money and actually start to get it into our bank account is through work. So how do you think about work and what is good work to you? It's inextricably tied to personal finance. um, And that's another piece that I find a little frustrating in the space is that financial education a lot of times is divorced from career focused education and and, um, career guidance. And they're so connected um, because your relationship with money impacts the decisions that you make around work. 
And so I think you you kind of have to do this work simultaneously. You have to do that inner work around your relationship with money in order to find good work um, in the in whatever that means for you. And I define it as work that is in line with your values, interests, and needs. Um, and we talk a lot about choosing work based on kind of your your values and your mission and the impact that you want to make. And I think that's very important, um, especially with millennials, my generation. That's a big conversation that we've been having to choose work in that way. And so that's just us trying to do good in the world and for your community in some way through the work that you do and ensure that you're not doing work that is um, making you money or making you wealthy in some way to the detriment of other people, um, you know, to, to find the best balance you can um, in that system. Um, but I like to include these other kind of dimensions to talk about work that's also in line with your interests, which we talk a lot about in the entrepreneurial world. Um, but I, I encourage everyone to sort of take that uh, point of view and into any work that they do. So it's your work should be, I say that work should be fun. It should be fulfilling, interesting for you. It should help you move towards your goals and help you um, be the person that you want to be. You know, you should enjoy what you do day to day. And um, that's not necessarily a, like if that work isn't accessible to you right now and what you need to do is focus on bringing in money, you know, that's not an imperative that you find this fulfilling values-based work, but that everybody deserves to be able to do good work, whatever, you know, whatever that is for you. And then, you know, it also needs to be in line with your needs. So all of those things that we talk about kind of as entrepreneurs and and the kind of mission-based values-driven work that we talk about as millennials, um, your job should also fulfill your needs. So you should be able to earn a living wage. Um, and I talk a lot about workers having ownership over their work. Um, so that can be taken really to the extreme and sort of a socialist um, mindset of like a worker cooperative where you literally own the means of production and make decisions in the workplace. Um, but on a more balanced, you know, kind of where we're at in society, it's just finding ways to have autonomy and power in the work you do, whether that is, you know, entrepreneurship and self-employment, which is the route that I've taken um, and encourage for a lot of people, although it's, you know, it's not right for everybody. Um, but you can also um, just find ways to ensure that you're like, that you have a voice um, in the company that you work for, on the team that you work for, whatever, whatever kind of slice of power that is, that um, part of your needs as a worker is having that ownership over your work so that you can shape the work that you do and work towards um, making sure it fulfills your interests and values as well. Mm, I appreciate so much of what you just shared. And I want to highlight just two things because I do think this needs component is really interesting. And especially in the work that I do where one does point people because of the research more towards what you're saying alignment to values in your work, alignment to your interests, alignment to purpose, uh, because those are internally driven motivators that tend to lead to more fulfillment and satisfaction. And yet, you know, there are some basic needs that we likely have around our work in terms of a sufficient income or things of that nature or other needs that you might have that you want to get from your work, say, you know, and it might be values alignment. Like I really appreciate mm -hmm. creativity. And so I, a need for me and my work is that I have that creativity or maybe it is 
I am extroverted and I know I need to be around people. And so a need for me is that I want to be around people. Again, that might align with values. So I might be taking needs in a slightly different direction. So maybe I'm starting to now talk about needs in an internal, internally driven intrinsic motivator space instead of extrinsic. But I also really appreciate where you're going in terms of this, having a voice in your work and this ownership in your work. And where my brain goes to in financial terms, Dana, is thinking about it as what asset you're building from your work as well. Like, Mm -hmm. where do you have some ownership in this? Not even something that you necessarily, if you are employed by somebody else, not even something that you necessarily have to articulate to them to say, I am going to take some ownership in my work, but really to have this mindset of what asset am I building for myself? What ownership am I taking away and creating for myself in doing this work. I don't know if that any of that resonates with you or if you have some reaction. I love that. I that's a really great element that I hadn't thought of as much as that um in addition to having ownership and it fulfilling your basic needs, um thinking about the asset that you can take away. So if you walk away from this job, um what are you taking with you? How have you sort of grown and developed. So what are what is the professional development, the network that you're taking from the job, the experience that you're um, taking with you, the the equity that you have access to, like whatever, you know, whatever kind of tangible or intangible benefits that might be, what um, what is the asset that you're building so that you're not only working for a wage and building an asset for someone else, which is the position that a lot of workers are in. What what is it that we can take um, for ourselves in that situation that we are owed for the work that we do? Exactly, exactly, exactly. One of the things that I want to ask you is, I think that financial and money management is important to sustainable ambition. I think that's why we're having this conversation. And you shared with me how you see sustainable ambition as being about living a life you love with ease and joy. So with that as context, I'm curious if you can help me connect the dots and from your perspective of how you might see financial management relating to sustainable ambition. I see the work we do sort of as two sides of the same coin in in really basic terms where I kind of tend to the personal finances um, and ambition is more related to tending to the work that you do or the career or the that sort of thing, the contribution that you make. Like I mentioned before, money is just inextricably tied to work. That's that's why we have work set up in the way that we do. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to be tied to ambition. There are a lot of things that you could be ambitious to achieve that don't have anything to do with it, those, those dollars and cents. But often, just because of the the way that our system is set up, that if you're going to be spending time doing any kind of labor, you're getting paid for it, and therefore that is tied then to how you use money and the decisions that you make with it down the line. Tending to your relationship with money is a key step in tending to your relationship with work and achievement and ambition um, and vice versa. I think those really go kind of back and forth. So I tend to start um, the conversation around money with how you earn money or the resources that you have available to you. So not necessarily just work, but what is kind of available to you because I need to create that kind of framework 
for how those things are connected. Because getting confident and comfortable and finding ease in your work can help you be confident and comfortable and easeful in how you manage money and the other way around. Um, I've really found for myself that finding this peace with money that I have found through the work that I do helps me to have peace in the career decisions that I make and the goals that I go after um, and the goals outside of my career, like um, home ownership and traveling and the, you know, and the kind of life that I want to live, that finding peace with the financial stuff that supports those things helps you make that decision from a place of peace and pursue those goals from a, a more peaceful place. So taking sort of the stress out of it or taking the desperation out of it a lot of times can help you kind of get quiet, listen to your inner voice and, and understand what you really want out of the work that you do or the life that you want to live. You articulated that so well. And it really brought forth for me how critical this is as a component of allowing people to step into sustainable ambition. Because money is so inextricably linked with our work and really to making life and work joyful and easeful or allowing us to step into that. And so this is core foundational work that needs to be done as people, just as you articulated at the end there, that allows them to kind of step into making choices and in a more empowered way and with more mm -hmm. clarity. Just as we wrap up here, I would love to just hear a little bit about even your current ambition with Healthy Rich and what impact you hope your work and your forthcoming book will have in the world. So this is hard to say out loud, and I, I think that's because of my relationship with ambition, which I want to investigate um, because of the feelings that come up. But my ambition for the book and for the work that I'm doing with Healthy Rich very basically is to change the way that people talk about money. So everyone who interacts with um, anything that I offer through this work, I want you to be able to think and talk about money differently because that's at the foundation of the issues that we have, the, the ways that we um, continue to perpetuate biases and systemic issues um, and perpetuate shame and um, kind of all the things that we've talked about throughout this conversation is in the ways that we talk about money. And so I want to change that to start. Um, on a much more practical, tangible um, place, I'm working with organizations and schools um, to incorporate personal finance education and guidance into the work they do. Educators and like program facilitators at um, community organizations, because money is tied into everything we do, are often faced with offering financial guidance to the people that they work with. And they're not trained to do that. So they're not confident in the advice they're giving. And so they tend to fall back on a lot of the budget culture resources that exist. And I want to offer an alternative and hopefully change the way that they're talking about money in those situations. And we're at a really important place for financial education um, where 
personal finance media is becoming a lot more popular. The idea and and the need for financial education is being recognized a lot more, and it's um, also being legislated across the country. There's much more interest in requiring financial education for high school graduation. And so I want to be part of that movement to ensure that when people are starting to get access to that education, that the education that they're getting access to is helping to move us forward and to fix some of these issues that we see rather than just perpetuating budget culture, um, which would be really disappointing to sort of mandate essentially budget culture education. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm hoping to have an impact on the ways that we talk about money going forward. This is such important work, Dana. Thank you for leading the charge. I was just talking with a coach who works with kids coming out of high school and looking at college and where she was articulating how they don't have this education. Mm -hmm. And so it's both good to hear that there's actually some legislations that's going to potentially make it required. But then as you're saying, to broaden that lens around this is going to be really, really important. And especially even in just sharing that, connecting the dots between making money and career choices as we step out into the world. So this has been such an illuminating conversation. Thank you for being here and introducing us to these wider lenses of how we all can be thinking about finances, money, financial management overall. Is there just a final piece of wisdom you'd like to leave our listeners with to help them take just one small steps towards perhaps becoming healthy, rich? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This conversation has been, I think you said it before, just really rich. Um, and so I'm, I'm so grateful to be invited into this space and, and for your questions. Um, coming back to something that we talked about before, which was that tending to our relationship with money is a vital piece of stepping into sustainable ambition. I think that often people see, kind of recognize that, but see the mandate there as what we need around finances is to have financial stability, um, which essentially, you know, means like to be making enough money and to have enough wealth in order to make decisions from a place of peace. And I don't think that that goes deep enough that I don't think that it's that is certainly a piece of it that like people need to have access to the resources they need to live. But it's much more about considering your relationship with money and and doing that inner work to see where money connects with all of the other pieces of your life, to see the histories and biases and stories that you're bringing to money that are driving your decisions. Um, and if you can do that work and find that peace within yourself, you can make those decisions from a, a much more peaceful and easeful place, regardless of the resources that you have. Um, and so I would encourage everyone to to start in that place, sort of finding trust in yourself and listening to your inner voice so that you can let that guide the decisions that you're making. Mm, that's lovely and a great place to point people to start. Dana, if people want to get more immersed in what you're offering and hear these other diverse voices around money and financial management, where can they find you? 
The best place to follow along is through our blog and newsletter. So at healthyrich.co, you can um, read the blog and subscribe to the newsletter, which will um, just send you all of the blog articles as they're published. And that'll let you um, read and hear the stories that I was talking about earlier, essays from our contributors, um, pieces from me that break down some of these um, financial products and systems to demystify them um, and help you understand them. Um, and then you'll also be able to follow news as I build the business and launch um, the education arm um, in a few months here um, to start working with organizations. So if you're interested in that, just subscribe to the newsletter and follow along there. Fabulous. Wonderful. And of course, I'll capture that in the show notes. Dana, thank you again for being here today and being in conversation with me. Thank you so much for having me, Kathy. Wow. I learned so much in this conversation with Dana. There really is so much to dig into here. So I hope you do explore her work. As I said at the end, it was an illuminating conversation and one that opened my eyes to new ways of thinking about the world of finance and how it impacts each of us depending on our personal experiences. I thought I'd share a few points that stood out to me. First, I really appreciate how Dana invites us to explore our relationship with money. And it's interesting how she also shared at the end how financial education is divorced from career guidance and education. And yet we both see work and finances is linked. That's probably a no duh, but <laughs> it's why it's helpful to bring this conversation here to the podcast. You know, as Dana said, our relationship with money impacts the decisions that we make around work and around our ambition and what we're aspiring to achieve. So it's helpful to really think about this. And I encourage you to do as Dana is suggesting, which is to explore your relationship with money. As she said, this is critical to sustainable ambition and is a foundational component of building your vision for your life and work and how you define success for yourself. I love the insight Dana shared at the end and also about her own experience that if we can explore our relationship with money and get more peaceful around it, we can then hear and listen to our own inner voice and understand what we really want out of both our work and our life. This really can be an important step in creating the space to allow ourselves to then become more conscious about our ambitions. Speaking with Dana made me also think about episode 81 and what was shared by my guest, Mike Trigg, a Silicon Valley 25-year veteran and author of the novel Bitflip, which explores ambition gone awry in the tech world. One key thing was how our environment and societal norms can impact our views on ambition, money, and what is enough. And Mike had said in that episode, quote, there are so many negative aspects of too many people wanting too much stuff and not being willing to be happier with what they have. And that message is one that is almost blasphemous in Silicon Valley. So if we were to take an opposing view of that one of Silicon Valley, where people might have a sense of we need more, it's never enough. And I'm generalizing here. <laughs> I live near Silicon Valley, so it's not like everybody subscribes to that point of view. But if we were to take that opposing view, what if you were to consider what Dana posed? What would a well-rounded view of money look like for you? Or what would healthy rich look like on your terms? 
What are your individual goals outside of the dollars and cents, as Dana said? And what are you wanting to achieve in life? As you reflect on today's conversation, what resonated with you? What's one learning or inspiration that caught your attention that you can work with either as a reflection, action, or way of being? So with that, thank you for being here for today's conversation. I'll be back in your feed in two weeks with a new story of sustainable ambition. You can find show notes for this and other episodes at sustainableambition.com slash podcast. And you may also like to listen back to episode 14 with Bridget Jones on managing your money to support your life. Bridget is the founder of Smart Sister Finance, which she started a few years post-retirement at 50 after a career holding executive roles in finance. Bridget shared a lot of great wisdom around finance in that episode as well, so you might like listening to it. And make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips, guides, and tools by signing up for Sustainable Ambition Forum, my twice-monthly newsletter. You can sign up at sustainableambition.com slash subscribe. Or send me thoughts or a listener question you'd like me to answer here on the podcast. You can leave me a voice note at bit.ly slash essaypodcast dash ask. See you soon. 